Welcome to Shared Ground, where we meet to explore the lands and forests of eastern Canada, Mi'kma'ki, and our human relationships to the rest of nature. We talk about ecology, conservation, forestry, and many interconnected issues. One of the main purposes of this podcast is to hear opinions, perspectives, and ideas from many different people. Nothing presented here is intended as a final word. Each will hopefully lead to a better understanding of a bigger picture. I am Amanda Bostland, and I am in search of ideas, practices, and attitudes that offer mutual benefit for humans and all species for whom these lands are home. I believe in the importance of finding shared ground where as humans we can live well and meet our needs while contributing to the well-being of all the incredible life we share this planet with. In this conversation, you will hear me speaking with Rosemary Lonas from Helping Nature Heal, based in Bridgewater, in Mi'kma'ki, also known as Nova Scotia. This is the ancestral and unceded territory of the Mi'kmaq people. I am going to try to say the name Bridgewater in Mi'kmaq. Sin so sebegetik. There are a couple of online resources for Mi'kmaq language learning and place names that I have come across and I'm really excited about. I will be sure to include these in the show notes. Rosemary Lonis has been running her ecological landscaping company, Helping Nature Heal, for 20 years and has a BA in Conservation and Environmental Studies from York University. She also has studied architectural design, horticulturist therapy, ecological landscape design, shoreline erosion, and landscape management. Rosemary originally came to Nova Scotia to study ecological forestry and organic gardening at Windhorse Farm in 1999. Today, you'll hear a bit about her experience at Windhorse Farm and with former owners Jim and Margaret Drescher. Also, about some of the history and philosophy of helping nature heal, how this company respects migrating birds and nesting season, a story of beavers under the ice, and much more. I have been studying design for sustainability and regeneration through Gaia Education over the past couple of years, and am currently within the economic dimension. Through this lens, I have a particular interest lately in exploring different ways of doing business and how this is intertwined with ecological and societal well-being. These relationships are central to Rosemary's business model, and you will hear about that too. I'd like to start talking about um, how you've made a business based in ecological restoration. And un- unfortunately, it's kind of rare that a business model incorporates kind of equal parts, or I don't know if they're equal parts, but you know, you put thought into society and economics and environment. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I'd just like to know, I guess, more about that, like why and, and, and how. Okay, sure. So I was trained that sustainability meant that you had to diversify that you couldn't have a single focused business model because if something happened, then you were going to be out of luck, right? Mm -hmm. So that to be sustainable, you had to have at least three prongs. And so I really looked at the fundamentals of my company when I first started about how could I be in each one of those spheres, economics, environment, and society, making a difference to the people that I connect with, but also having responsibility to the planet and to what I call the commons, the air that we breathe, the clean water that we drink, and the food that we eat. And so how could I wrap it all around something that would make it a living for myself and hopefully for other people as well mm-hmm. and be have longevity? 
right? So I kind of looked at helping nature heal as this organism that had to have this three-pronged model and plan um, in order to survive, but also to produce something that was worthwhile to the world, right? So for me, the environment, of course, I was trained to witness nature in its truth and not put too many filters on it. Um, And I learned a lot about that at Windhorse Farm. I'm just going to jump in here. Both Rosemary and myself have, at different times, lived at Windhorse Farm. I would like to say a little bit more about this very special place. There are mossy forests, gardens, brooks, and there is a large old growth forest that has regularly been selection harvested for almost two centuries with draft horses to provide sustainable building materials and wood products. The lands have never been clear-cut. Other aspects of Windhorse include organic permaculture gardens, a venue for group gatherings, and tiny off-grid cabins. The former co-owners, Margaret and Jim Drescher, have recently passed ownership to Ulnawag Education Centre, which is an Indigenous-led charity. This is quite a remarkable story, and in case you are not familiar, I will put a link in the show notes. Back now to Rosemarie at Windhorse Farm in our contemplative forest practices that Jim mm. would at first take us into the bush and just leave us there for a day and be like, what am I doing here? <laughs> Remind me again what the purpose of being here in the middle of nowhere is. Right. So this was when you were taking the, the apprenticeship for ecological forestry and organic gardening at Windhorse That's Farm? right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So I was there for 14 months. Really to get back to that purpose of this three-pronged idea was so that I could be doing what I loved at any time of the year, at any location on the planet. You know, that there was this infinite potential that I could witness and take hold of if I wanted to. Because being a gardener, you know, the season's only eight months long. And Mm -hmm. so what do you do the other months, right? You're planning, designing, all of that stuff, but does that generate income for you and create a space that you can thrive in? Not really at the beginning, right? It was Mm -hmm. pretty, it was pretty tight. And so just being a gardener wasn't enough, you know? So I had to think about, okay, if this gardening part is for me, this kind of hand-to-mouth economy, Um, and that's not enough to survive on, how do I look through the lens of sustainability to find other ways to help other people, but also receive myself? My family is uh, like hunters, trapper, fishermen. I mean, my dad was a miner in Northern Ontario, so we lived that rural life out in the woods. And if you wanted something, you had to work for it to go get it. So it was about remembering my heritage in that way and how can I develop a company that allows me to see a challenge and turn it into an opportunity to go get what I need. And the idea of giving and receiving is a cycle. So you have to give in order to receive. So if I want to receive money to buy my groceries, I have to give of myself first. So I look to my community to say, okay, gardening isn't enough for me to survive, nor is it enough to hire other people to help them survive. So what do I need to give out in order to be able to receive some economy for me and the people that I want to hire? So what I started giving was free workshops at the Women's Center. You know, I worked for free at my local church and did gardening and landscaping for them. 
um, the more I did at the women's center at, um, at that time it was the second story women's center in Lunenburg. And so I developed a whole program of gardening and education and it was every week year round. And so it was giving of myself and giving of my time and my energy and some skill and knowledge and in, you know, receiving came out of that, right? Those people who took those workshops eventually hired me to do tasks. Um, the money started to come the more that I would give. So that worked out really well, right? That I would teach in the winter and work in the land through the season, through the summer season and into the fall. Mm-hmm. And then I realized that I wasn't making a big enough impact. So from the economy and the society kind of prong, it was like, okay, well, I need to hire people in order to make more of an impact. So I started developing landscaping programs where people would, you know, hire us to build a project and then we would steward them, we would maintain them for them. So it just kept kind of reiterating itself and changing slightly. One year I would really focus on education. The next year I'd focus on being an advocate for nature and I'd get myself on all kinds of committees and do work in the town or with the Ecology Action Center or Nature Trust or, you know, these other groups. Mm -hmm. And then some years I would focus on my own education. And so it was just a constant um, whirlwind almost. When my family look back, they're like, you just didn't ever stop. You never gave in. You never gave up either, right? Mm. And I'd say, well, because this is what I was born to do, you know, so there's no giving up. This is what I'm doing. This is my life. And so having an innovative mindset to be able to see the three spheres of sustainability and go, okay, I'm lacking in this field or I'm lacking in enough economy. So how do I generate more? Mm -hmm. You know, well, you get innovative and you create a pruning program or you create a, um, you know, a gardening program for women that need, you know, social activities or need some mental health. And um, I went and took the um, horticulture therapy program so that I could be more tuned in with how to relieve stress, how to relieve anxiety or other issues that it seems we have a lot of these days, right? So then I could run programs specifically to help that ailment or that challenge. Mm. Um, So like my travel through the spheres just kept tweaking, tweaking until I would find something that other people were interested in and would purchase. And then I'd run with it for a while until they didn't want it anymore. And then I'd find something else, you know? So it's just keep shifting and reiterating itself. Yeah. And so you had, you mentioned the mindset. So that was just something you were kind of always watching to try to get those three things into as much balance as possible. So you just kind of kept checking back in and, 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 um, yeah. And I, I kind of don't like the balance idea. Okay. Okay. Great. Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of funny because to me, challenge and opportunity only, um, uh-huh only live if one thing is out of whack right and it becomes a challenge and so you don't have enough money that's a huge challenge right or I don't have enough of the right customers that want my services or I don't have enough knowledge to produce a product that I'm really interested in for my clients like a food forest so I would go and take a course if I didn't observe the challenge I wouldn't have taken on or noticed the opportunity hidden within it Uh right and so 
someone told me once that challenge and opportunity are the same coin, just a different side, and we float in the middle on that ridge. And so some days we're looking at the challenge and some days we're looking at the opportunities. And that the wise person actually notices the challenges and wants them, you know? Mm-hmm. So like there were days where you know, I couldn't make payroll on Friday. So what do I do? I go volunteer somewhere and I give of myself extraordinarily, you know, that kind of mindset of like, okay, I really need a large receiving gift in my life right now to make payroll, pay the bills, feed my family, whatever it might be. So I better get my butt out there and do something equally as great, you know, to be able to offer that up. So, you know, people would say, oh, you're going to burn out or you're whatever, you're doing too much or the more you give, the more people, you know, take advantage of you or they, you know, and I'd be like, that's not how I see it. I see it that if I need something, I better give of myself first. Hmm. So if I have a goal that I want to reach a a target, whether it's a financial target or a knowledge target, I'm like, okay, how, where is the linkage through that sustainability diagram to say, okay, this is the avenue you need to take to give of yourself in order to get that receiving back Mm -hmm. into you. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, it, it does kind of, but it it's not intuitive to me. And I imagine <laughs> that a lot of people, like you, you seem very like clear on this is how this works, but mm-hmm. it, it makes sense. It's fascinating to hear you talk about it, but I don't, I don't <laughs> think that would be like the order of events that normally people like turn to when they think. Sure. And so like I've taught pruning workshops, for instance, and like 10 years later, someone will call me and say, I took a workshop one time and I've been practicing and I read the books you told me and I've done the things, but I need your help now and I'm willing to pay for that help. So Mm -hmm. it's like, great. I gave at one point and eventually the cycle produced an offering back to me. So now I'm going to receive cash. I'm going to receive gratitude from that client. I'm going to give them the best I've got in knowledge and skill and awareness and they will thank me and they will be super happy that I helped them out and then they will pay the bill, right? Mm -hmm. And so I will receive from that gift that I gave 10 years ago. Sometimes it takes that long to get the receiving back. <laughs> and I'm also imagining you're not like doing the accounting on this, like like no. saying, oh, have I received, what have I received from that good thing I did like eight and a half years ago? Yeah, it's just sort of no. like, you know, overall that if you're contrib- putting in eventually yeah. what you need comes back to it's you. It's like being a good citizen, right? You have to contribute into your community. Like yeah. I, you know, active on programs and council and oh, subcommittees yeah. and all kinds of things in all different regions regions of my work Mm -hmm. because eventually that gift of my own time and money and energy sometimes will come back to me. Yeah. There's just a faith that that's going to happen. I've noticed you do an incredible amount of volunteer free work and have for as long as I've known you, even though you do run a business and you charge for some services, a lot of the work you do is not for money, I've noticed. That's right. Yeah. This is reminding me, I had an interesting conversation with with Jim Drescher Mm. uh, a year or so ago, and he was talking about a field, he's noticed what he's calling a field of generosity within the forest, Mm. that there's not... um, 
you know, in, in, in nature, there's not really any transactional, I give you this, you give me back, but it's like everybody that lives within the forest is giving into it. Yeah. So every being lives within this field of generosity and yeah. giving to and getting fr- back from what they need. Yeah. Isn't so this is what that's making me think this is your belief in what you do naturally, or you've taught yeah. yourself to do or It's however. really great. When we rebuild our ecological landscapes, you know, I'm always telling people this isn't just about you, the client, but all the critters that we're going to invite in as we put the right plants in the right places and as we create habitat and we create seed stock and the generosity of the plantings, right, into this new landscape that may be a lawn right now and all of a sudden we're going to turn it into a system that lives and breathes on its own. And I think about the poop loop, you know, and they'll say, well, why is it important if the birds come back? And it's like, because we need their poop. We need them to pick the seeds and transport them elsewhere. Otherwise, we can never really be sustainable and self-sufficient here because really there's no there's no real self-sufficiency. It's like we depend on everybody else and every other critter on this planet to do some form of work for us in order for us to live here. So the very smallest nematodes and worms and beetles and things are chewing up the leaf matter that we lay on the beds or the mulch or the seeds that we put down in the lawn conversion, you know, they're eating those and pooping them out somewhere else. And those minerals that get transported are the gift that the worm is giving us so that that plant can thrive, right? Because now it has the mycelium and all the connectors between the plant and the soil, all of that connection and love and life can't happen without everybody playing a part of the game. Related to this topic, I would like to let you know that last year, I was part of a social research and development project through How We Thrive, and we produced a five-episode podcast then called Nature of Hosting, which came out of interviews with 20 community builders, facilitators, and hosts living in Mi'kma'ki. When I just mentioned to Rosemarie a time when I heard Jim Drescher describing the forest as a field of generosity, it was during that exploration. You can find that part of our conversation with Jim in the third Nature of Hosting episode called Forest Field of Generosity, and you can find it at howwethrive.org forward slash hosting. And so, you know, our landscapes are more than just the superficial aesthetic appeal. It's really about building the soil, building the capacity for the land to actually support the needs that we want. You know, if we want an almond tree in our backyard, we can have that, but we definitely need all the companion plants for that tree. We need to have habitat for the bugs and the critters and the snakes and the toads and the birds and all of those other things that contribute to the health of that plant so I can actually pick the fruit off the tree and eat it. Mm -hmm. And I can't get the fruit with its best qualities and minerals and vitamins if I don't have all the other parts. Mm -hmm. Like we're not in silos, right? We're organisms living together, whether we're human or animal in a different way of animal, you know, like the four-legged critters and the worms and things are just as equally valuable as me within this landscape. And when we can remove our high hats and say, yeah, I'm just like the worm, then people go, oh, right, now we are actually living of the land and being sustainable, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it takes a long time to get people there to that place of saying we're equal to the worms or the rock or the tree or that stick or the apple core. 
you know, like it's all part of it and we're kin, right? Mm -hmm. We are kin to each other. And that's, that's what I'm trying to build is people's awareness that this system that you live in, the place outside the box, you know, outside the house is really the thing that's supporting us. That's how we breathe. That's how we eat and drink. And if we don't support that ecosystem that's wrapped around us, then we're going to fail as humans on this planet, right? Like, it's not about saving the earth. It's about saving our capacity to stay here. Right. <laughs> and that is dwindling, of course, even heightened now with climate change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, well, that that is something I've been wondering about how people have responded. Like you have enough people responding in a positive way to what you're doing for you to to run this successful business. But like how much education has been involved in getting or, or are there just a lot of people that really share these values and maybe don't recognize don't recognize it at first or yeah what am I asking you can you answer whatever that is I'm asking you <laughs> for sure <laughs> okay, good. yeah yeah it's like this unknown presence right it's hard to articulate what it is when we say oh you actually want to build an ecosystem you want to have an ecological landscape in air quotes like what does that even mean right. <laughs> what is yeah. that thing right and it's like the spaces that we live outside of the box and I refer to the home as the box right Mm -hmm. it's like as soon as you get outside of the box what do you do you breathe and most people go oh fresh air you know and like how is that fresh air made it's made through the soil and through the plants and you know all the cycles we learned about in grade six science you know the carbon and nutrient and water cycles and all that stuff and those can only operate if all the parts are connected and so when we think of like an urban landscape where it's mowed and it's surrounded by concrete and it has maybe a big house and very small amount of green space, how can you actually turn that into something that supports the humans? Well, we can, right? We can take those spaces and plant trees and shrubs and ground covers and put chunks of dead wood in there and maybe a hay bale or two and some brush and, you know, we can develop those even in the smallest of spaces um, because it's important to do so. And so we ought to do that as much as we can because we have to breathe and without the plants, we can't breathe. So, you know, if we, if we don't keep the plants as kin, then we're going to die on this planet without being like, we're going to suffocate ourselves. Right. Yeah. And, and what is it that makes, um, people want you to do this work for them to make them realize that it's important or see Mm -hmm. that connection between the air that they breathe and treating the plants as kin. Yeah. I think it's, um, yeah, like the education piece is huge for sure. People call us because they don't want so much lawn or they only need a little bit or they don't need any at all. Usually it's a lawn issue because that's that's the biggest one for sure, getting okay. rid of the lawn. Yeah. Um, but then there's, you know, they hear a lot of marketing around pollinators and save the bees and the monarchs. And, you know, there are commercials on TV about whales with plastic bags in their bellies and stuff. So um, I think as we learn more about climate change and we understand this process more that we're living inside this changing dynamic process over time. I think some people, it's like they maybe are listening to their intuition or that instinct or that little child voice that's still inside them that wants to be outside and play. And they might want to have their grandkids be outside and play. And so they are hungry for an option to the traditional methods. And whether that's 
you know, not having a lawn and having food instead, or it's having wood chip trails so they can go meditate somewhere or just wander in the woods, or, um, you know, their shorelines eroding faster than they were told it was going to, or the hurricane comes by and blows down all their trees, or like usually there's a significant event that happens, like grandbabies are really powerful. You know, if you want your parents to do something different, have some babies. (laughs) 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 Because grandparenthood seems to be a big driver. Like they want to do what's best. And I think because we've had so many young people stand up for the environment, like Greta and, you know, all these other wonderful young people who are Mm -hmm. protesting against what's going on environmentally, they feel like they have to do something as well. They have to answer the call because they don't want to be ashamed that they didn't do as much as they could to help. Or Mm -hmm. they don't want to look at the face in that crib and say, sorry, I'm going to keep driving my big fossil fuel truck and I'm going to keep spending all these carbon dollars. How could they look at that little baby and say that? You know, Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people can't do that. They look down at this innocent child and think, oh my gosh, this world is a disaster and it's getting worse. And what can I do to make it better for you so you get to breathe until you're 80 as well? Mm-hmm. And um, I think that, you know, puts a lot of pressure on some people and a lot of weight to do something, you know, grow your own tomatoes, stop mowing the corners of your property. Um, plant a few trees now and then, you know, um, deciding to maybe not fly as much or whatever, you know, everyone's decisions are going to be different. So when people call us and they say, I want ecological landscape, I'm like, okay, here's my top 20 questions. <laughs> what does that mean? Right? Because you're really trying to match their needs with what Yeah, you it can- has to be you know, heartfelt specific. Otherwise, it doesn't have any value. And I learned a really good lesson from Jamie Simpson. So Jamie is a wonderful local author, and he's an environmentalist, and he's also now a lawyer. And his business, I believe, is called Juniper Law. And he's been a really amazing mentor. And um, like, I've read all of his books back and forth a couple times. Um, He wrote a book about old growth forests. And within the book are like the GPS coordinates for these beautiful, amazing old growth trees. And I said, wow, that's so great that you did that because most people don't want to tell you where the big trees are, right? They want to keep it a secret Mm -hmm. because they're afraid someone's going to go and cut it down, right? And that happens all the time, of course. And so why did you choose to actually like put the map and the story about how to get to that tree so you could experience it? And he said, well... If we don't ever acknowledge it, um, be with it, see it, and love it, how can we ever expect anyone to protect it? Mm. you got to love it first before you can protect it, yeah. right? And that yeah. was a huge, like, eye-opening, of course, that's true, right? Like, yeah. if I don't love the fact that I can breathe freely without having to wear, you know, an oxygen mask or worry about smog or... You know, I mean, some cities, you can't go outside in the summertime because there's too much smog or there's fire smoke in the air or, you know, pollution like crazy. If you don't love that fact that we can step outside in this community and breathe this fresh air, how are you ever going to protect it and grow more of it and understand it? 
Yeah, it almost makes me think of like some sometimes you don't appreciate something though until you notice the absence of it. Like if you were to get, you know, sick or a sore ankle or something, you're like, oh, I wish I appreciated that all the time that I don't have that. And then you get healthy and then you feel really appreciative for a couple of days and then you forget about it. And I wonder if it's something similar with like, we're just taking some of these things really for granted because we have an experience living in a city where you can't breathe the air happily sure. or healthily. Yeah. I mean, we're so fortunate to be where we are right in rural Nova Scotia where we're pretty well you know insulated from some of those big city issues but they're coming you know mm-hmm. yeah yeah so I you talking about uh learning from from Jamie Simpson and and I know that uh I love to think of this as also a feel, kind of a field of generosity that I know yeah. you influence people all the time with your like what you know and your wisdom and then to hear about you having mentors I find that really um, inspiring that we can all really be really be learning from each other yeah. and so I so I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your time at Windhorse Farm sure and maybe what well particularly like what has stood out for you or stays with you from that experience yeah. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's a big, yeah, that's a big story. But um, yeah, for me, you know, what I hear in my head a lot is a statement that Margaret said to me, actually, um, shortly after I arrived at Windhorse, there was a family challenge. And, um, and I had to kind of come to terms with that and talk to Jim and Margaret about it. And, uh, and Jim was like, you know, take your time. Obviously you're going through this really stressful, emotional drama, family drama, but you know, you're here and you're safe and and you can be here and this can be your home. And Margaret said, well, yeah, yeah, for sure. You, you know, all of that's true. We are family. We will love you. You're here. You're safe. This can be home, but the healing's in the work. If you don't do the work, you know, you're not going to heal and neither will all the people around you and the vibrations that you send out as you're healing will help all of your family and all the other people that are connected to this drama. So you still have to work, right? You can't just sit there in your cabin and cry and be sad and depressed and God knows what will come of that. You need to be productive and focused on your health and your healing because that's where the truth of the healing comes from, is from giving, and then you can receive the help back. And I think that has been, you know, one of my greatest lessons is the healings in the work. You know, when I'm sad or, you know, traumatic in some way, there's always, you know, things going on as we live our lives where things are challenging and whatnot. But when I get out there and my hands are in the goo and the mud and I'm planting trees or I'm pruning or I'm running a wheelbarrow or raking or whatever that might be, you know, you kind of sweat it out and you have time in your mind to chew over the things. These repetitive actions gives your brain some time to rest and you can think it through and you can become more true to who you are. And then you get to share that trueness and be really who you are with all the people around you. And then they get strength from that and they acknowledge that, oh, if you can do it, I can do it too, right? So I think... We've helped a lot of people heal up through our work, and we've also given them the space to do work, right, in their own backyard to weed the gardens or prune the shrubs or deadhead or whatever that might be. Mm-hmm. 
So for me, the horticulture therapy idea is always infused in the landscape. And part of the design process for me is permaculture and biodynamics and square foot gardening and all those things. But as they mush together to be part of the Helping Nature Heal model, it's really about how can I get these people out of the box out into the real world, whether it's a postage stamp size lot or it's 100 acres, how do I get them out there so they can start to immerse themselves in the natural processes so they can see who they truly are and who their family is and maybe figure out some challenges and some problems while they're doing it. But when you come back in, you're more closer to who you actually are without mm-hmm. all the masks and the filters. And I love it. And then your family are like, wow, look at you. You know, you were stressed when you came home from work and you went and spent an hour out there picking the rhubarb or doing whatever. And now you're not so stressed. I believe this better iteration of who you're meant to be, mm-hmm. what your greater purpose is on this planet you get closer, you know, every time that you engage with the nature. And so if that's really the game of Mm. getting closer to who we actually are and maybe fulfilling those dreams and goals of childhood, then that's great, right? Like what a gift to give to somebody. Yeah, I love that. So, so they're, you're, you're like supporting the larger system. You're supporting the other beings and creatures you know, with the more diverse, healthy habitat that you're creating for your clients. But then mm-hmm. that in turn is supporting them to be this better iteration of themselves. And, yeah. oh, yeah, that's just fantastic. <laughs> and and also that, yeah, I'm thinking too, it's neat how, like when you have that opportunity to be outside interacting with your landscape or what, wherever you are within mm-hmm. the rest of nature, mm-hmm. you... Um, you're fully participating within it. Is that part of it? Like Definitely, because all of your senses come alive, right? And mm-hmm. if you can put aside the worries of the day and just go and weed the garden for the sake of weeding the garden or picking the fruit or the veggies or, you know, mulching or doing whatever activity it is, it's yeah. through those activities that you heal your own psyche and all of your inside stuff. Yeah. So when you finish that activity it's like free therapy you know Mm. and we all need a little TLC you know and so you come back and you've like left something out there that isn't needed anymore or maybe it takes the heat off of a you know pressure-filled day or something for just a moment in time there's a bit of clarity Mm -hmm. of awareness of something bigger than our troubles and ourselves right and who knows how much power there is in just that instance of that it's like a ripple right Mm -hmm. like you know I mean we've all been in a home setting or a household setting or a group setting where you know someone's cranky right and it just ripples through and then by the end of the meeting or the visit or whatever everyone's kind of off put and they're not quite centered anymore and that idea of like rippling out can be positive too Mm -hmm. you know if you're in a setting and someone comes in and they're super happy and they've got a big smile and everything's cool and they're engaging and saying hello and handshaking and hugging then that ripples out too and then you leave that meeting and you're a little bit happier for your day right like we all impact each other Mm -hmm. and that energy we give off definitely impacts everybody else around us so whether it's positive or negative we have the choice right to say 
yeah, I'm not going to be like that anymore or I'm going to set that aside and deal with it another day and give myself some room to not have to be hassled by that old memory that's still kicking around in my mind or, mm. you know, that sore toe, I can put a Band-Aid on it and keep walking, you know, it's not the end of the world. Um, yeah. Hmm. Well, one thing I've been reading about lately, and I bet this is something you comment on, is during spring, this is a time for nesting and the migratory birds are nesting mm -hmm. here too. And so there has been some questions lately about is current commercial forestry practices going against the Migratory Birds Convention Act of mm -hmm. 1919, where the birds and their eggs and their nests are supposed to be protected. But when any activity comes in and destroys them, then they're not being protected. And and I was just, yeah, wondering um, any general thoughts you have on that, but maybe also like some of the steps and practices you use within helping nature heal to um, safeguard the birds and other creatures. For sure. Yeah. I, I believe that our current forestry practices are not the best right now. I think there's a lot of work to be done there. Um, I think that we have these rules and regulations that are often bypassed with money or influence or, you know, depending on who you are and who you know and how much cash you have, you can kind of buy yourself some, some, uh, you know, ways to get around some of the regulations and the rules. And that's a real shame, of course. Um, and I, I really wish that we would have more authority over the rules and have people that would check in and watch out for things like that. Um, yeah, I think what we've seen recently within the Bridgewater region here of people banding together and saying that this isn't okay to log in our watershed area for all the reasons. I mean, the white fish is one, but we're here in this town with all this population that needs clean water. Like, why would they even think that was okay, right? It just blows my mind mm -hmm. that they would even consider that that would happen. And then for them to say, after we've done all this work, to stand up for it, to say, oh, well, thank you. You know, we, we definitely need community input and we're happy to, you know, put a moratorium on that and da da da. Thanks a bunch. Well, why didn't they just do it in the first place, you know? Yeah. And I'm not sure how the power is being handled within DNR and bylaw officers and, um, you know, who's making the rules, who's standing up for the rules. I mean, this is 1919, like, come on. Yeah, <laughs> right? over 100 years ago. That <laughs> shouldn't insane. be a no-brainer. So during bird season, we sort of pay attention of who's coming and going. And um, like we do a lot of ocean front work. So we're very aware of bank swallows, for instance. Mm -hmm. And we know that the bank swallows need three feet of eroding cliff. And they show up on a particular day in May. And then they hang out until mid-July. And then they're off going somewhere else. Mm -hmm. So we have a strategy that we get into the shoreline before if we know they're in that area or they might be in that area we work before they arrive and then we don't work in that area while they're nesting and raising their young and then we come back at the end of the season and continue our work then um, when we're in the woods of course when we're looking up and if we have to you know take out some problem trees or something around someone's property that's causing risk to them of course 
the humans tend to take priority sometimes, right? So we are always looking up, looking for nests, looking for cavity trees, um, and then just alerting the client that now is not a good time to do that. And Mm -hmm. once we see them fledge and we see them out of the nest, then we can come back and do that work for you. And we encourage the subs that we use and the other forestry companies that we sub in sometimes to do the same and of course they pay attention to those regulations too Mm -hmm. so it's just that greater sense of awareness of which birds are coming who is apt to be here what is the nesting period um, can we get in before or after and then can we leave stands of snags or you know big old dead pine trees if they're out of the risk of landing on a house or a car or something like that then we really do encourage them to leave those and so we will um especially during construction time, we will flag trees off, we'll uh, snow fence around them, we'll put hay bales around them, make sure that the trucks don't get too close and things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's really an awareness and then a planning and then scheduling and making sure that all parties are aware, especially the client. And if other contractors are there, then we, you know, can put up signs or flag things areas off so that people aren't going in there. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah. That's neat. That sounds really important to be aware of, of course. And it sounds like a bit on the surface or immediately it sounds like, oh, well, that's a bit inconvenient for you. But it's just one of those things you learn how to work around like you would work around a bad snowstorm or any other thing that you can't control, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. We can't put up signs and tell the birds not to come, right? Like they're coming. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We Did like you try that? <laughs> I haven't tried. No, but <laughs> that's a good idea, though. <laughs> I wonder if they would listen to those little signs. I I'm not sure what language yeah, to write yeah, them exactly. in, but <laughs> or what? To... Yeah, is it a visual thing or an audio thing? Or what? <laughs> um, because the ecosystem is so important to our capacity to live here, we have to respect it, or we're going to you know, farm ourselves out of the way. I mean, um, in the Symphony of Soil video, um, uh, Vandana Shiva and some of the other um, producers of that film talk about how Rome tilled themselves out of life, right? Mm -hmm. They tilled so often and so frequently that they tired out the land that they could then not feed themselves. And so that whole nation collapsed and that whole civilization ended at some point, you know, because of that. And it's like, those are old lessons that we should have learned by now. And I think that this is kind of the challenge with our youth right now is that they're learning these historical lessons and then they look to us currently into the future and they're like, nothing has changed, right? We're still doing dumb things. And when are we ever going to kind of shake our head and say, okay, we need to do it differently. And um, I think it takes the power of the youth right now. I think they ha- they hold a lot of power. And I think coming together as a group of concerned citizens has a ton of power. Mm-hmm. And I really encourage people to band together when they notice something that isn't appropriate, whether it's logging or a new road development or whatever is going on. We have the right to stand up for that. And I encourage everyone to do so, of course, in whatever way they can, right? Mm -hmm. Um, 
at Helping Nature Heal, we certainly respect all of these critters. And, you know, we understand that every footstep is causing damage. You know, we're compacting the soil every time we take a step on this earth. And there is going to be some little um, soil microbiology that isn't going to like living in a compacted soil system. So when we think about it, in that way, we tread a little lighter with our steps, right? Mm-hmm. But we are still having to do work. We're still having to be out in the world. We can't isolate ourselves in a little no, bubble. and we want to feel part of the world too. Like we have right. a right to take steps in the world where we also live. Exactly. So then it becomes, well, what is our human, what is the humanness then? What is our responsibility? What is our free rights to do you know um i have a piece of land and every time i go for a hike i feel like ooh, i'm hurting someone but am i treading light enough that they can rebound you know that i'm not actually harming them to the point of death you know otherwise you wouldn't take any steps right you would be sitting in your couch all day yeah so there's this human thing of us being part of the animal world. And I think that to be responsible to that is to know that we are going to cause some harm, but there's that huge but that we do have the capacity to make amends or to fix it or to do something in lieu of that. So I may cut down a tree for firewood at my land that's going to warm me and help feed me, right? Because I can cook on my wood stove. Um, But I'm going to go plant some more trees. So I've taken the habitat from that bird or the squirrel or whoever was using that tree. Um, But I also need to have my needs fulfilled as well. So if I'm truly kin with that squirrel, then I'm going to do my best to repair or replace as much as possible um, for that animal so that it can also continue to thrive. Because mm-hmm. he's going to take seeds away from somebody, right? The beaver's going to chew down the willow down a creek and, you know, kill all the fir trees off because they don't like living in all that water. So we're all making damages, you know, and it's like, what do we do next is the important part, I think. I think being aware of that damage, like I I've, I, had this light bulb moment one winter when Greg and I were at our land and we were walking on the ice on this um, beaver dammed creek that now was a lake. And so we could look down and actually see the beaver swimming underneath us, right, in the ice. And there's the beaver house. And you could tell that there was many babies in there. You could see the air coming out of the beaver house and stuff. And um, it was really great to kind of take witness of it. And it was definitely a light bulb moment for me when, you know, at first we didn't like the beaver and he was damming weird spaces and flooding our road and causing us challenge, right? (laughs) Um, And then we were on this beaver pond and we could see them and I could see where he had chewed down all the hardwoods and had brought all the stems over to the feeding space. And you could see all the little footprints and everything where all the babies were out and they were eating all these little twigs and stuff. And I was like, oh, he's just trying to provide for his family too, right? So he's causing damage over here. He's flooded this creek and now all these um, softwoods are dying because they don't like that environment and he's eating up all the hardwoods and they will re-sprout and some things are going to die and not re-sprout like the fir trees 
And the whole purpose is to feed his babies and create enough waterway that he can teach them how to swim and do all the things that beavers do. So I was like, oh, he is just like me, right? Like he's doing damage for his own good and for his family's good, but he's also then creating a new environment that other things can thrive, like cattails and irises and the grasses, and those things will be consumed by other critters, you know, and the ripple keeps going on and on. Yeah. So then I felt much more kin to the beaver, mm-hmm. and I kind of understood that, okay, it's, it has to be okay in some way to cause some damage, mm-hmm. because that's like the challenge opportunity thing too, right? Like there's a bit of damage, then there's a rebound and there's a benefit and then something else happens and then there's another benefit and it just keeps fluctuating back and forth and we just live in this dynamic thing that nothing is ever stable and there's never perfection. It's you do the best you can until you know better and then you do better, right? Mm -hmm. And that is a state of dynamics as well where we're always learning so there's always better later right? Yeah. If we've done the best we could at the moment and we've helped remediate whatever the challenge was, then like, what else can we ask of ourselves? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I feel like, uh, yeah, the, the kind of the theme of our conversation is sort of keeps coming down to mindsets. Like how do we interact with the world based on what we believe? And so I actually, I, I wrote something down from your website that really struck me, and I'm just going to read it. Um, you, You say, we envision a world where all people realize their deep interconnection with the earth and possess both the knowledge and capacity to dig deep for ecological solutions to remediate human impacts while creating resilient, sustainable communities. And I was wondering, like, what would allow more people to develop that capacity needed? Or like, how, mm. how does this mindset grow that would enable us all to thrive? Yeah. I feel like when we go outdoors and we are fully aware with all of the senses, we can smell it, we can see it, we can taste it, touch it, absorb it. If we can get to a clear mind of where are we now? What is this life? What is this thing that I'm doing on a daily? And where are the challenges? Where are the benefits? And do I want more out of this life? Do I want more out of my day? Am I perfectly fine where I am now? You know, being okay and aware of the truth of where we're at right this second and noticing where we, we are longing for something. So what's really in our heart? Where are we most happy and joyful? And how do I get there more frequently so that we stay, we realize that every breath comes because the soil and a tree created the oxygen, you know, it's like you walk out there and you can leave all the junk out of your head and the worries of the day and all the stresses and whatever. Can you just put it in a little package on the shelf for just a short while and go and sit on the ground and feel your bum in the wet soil or your toes in the beach sand or whatever it may be for you, you know? And can you just breathe quietly for a moment? Like I'm remembering Jim and the contemplative forest practice, you know, and just just being you 
without your name, your job, your family connections, your drama, whatever. Can you just for a moment be you? So I understand that you don't use machines very often. Mm-hmm. You you rely mostly yep. or almost ex- completely on on human labor in your business as much as possible. Okay, yeah. Yeah. and how do you make that viable, or how have you worked that into your model? Yeah, well, we firstly we have to find the ideal client that understands that process, and that it that is our business model. You know, to use human labor as the economy and the social coming together that. We want to hire local people to do these jobs. Yeah, so we work in the three maritime provinces. Um, pretty almost every week we're going somewhere else. So yeah. this week we were in PEI for two days. Last week we were in New Brunswick for a couple days. We're going up to Cape Breton in another week to do a couple weeks of work up there. So we'll bring our people, of course, but if there is capacity to hire some local people or engage with an NGO or a watershed group or somebody else, then we'll invite them along with us too. Mm -hmm. So um, the human factor, humans are expensive, right? They have needs that are probably equal to a machine as far as fuel and reboot time and maintenance time. So we have a healthcare program where everyone has access to physiotherapy, massage therapy, all those kinds of things to keep our bodies as the machine healthy. Uh Um, And we encourage, of course, healthy diets and no smoking and things like that on our job sites. Um, Because humans are costly, we have insurance on humans, we have food costs, we have travel, windshield time to get people there and back. You know, those are expenses that have to be wrapped up in the project estimate. And sometimes in the end, you know, it is more expensive than running a machine. But when we think about the environmental costs and the upstream and downstream effects of our work, we're really actually less costly than the machines. If you think about how expensive it is to pull fossil fuels out of the ground and refine them and ship them, and then all of the gears of those machines, you know, the metal, the rare earth metals sometimes that are in them, and the damage to the environment, those expenses way outweigh the cost of the humans. So when we do true cost accounting, which sometimes baffles the clientele, but when we talk to them about those actual reality costs, right? The damage that the quarry is, the damage to the road systems, the damage of getting the machine off the loader, the fuel spill that's invariably going to happen, the leakage all along the shoreline or on the land, and then the land is now ruined because it has fossil fuels dripping all over it. Those costs way outweigh the fact that we're going to quietly come in with wheelbarrows and move that soil around and do the work, you know, and we're going to feed those people really well and they're going to sleep well at night and know that they have awesome jobs every day. Yeah. yeah. Right? Like it's totally too apple and orange kind of conversation right. when you go to that place. Like we talk about it a lot with living shorelines, right? People say, oh my God. I could just throw up a rock wall for $100,000 and be done with it in a week and then I'm secure for the rest of my life. Well, it's not really true to start off with because climate change is going to toss a storm at your way and that rock wall is going to be damaged at some point in your lifespan. 
Um, and I say, okay, so that's two guys, right? You got the guy at the quarry loading the dump truck with the rock, and you got the guy here that, so that dump truck's gonna drive to the site, and you got the guy on the excavator that's gonna place the rocks. So two guys get a job for a couple days. And yeah, it's done. And it's only perfect on day one because every other day the rocks are eroding and being displaced by wave energy and wind energy. They're being like pummeled by 14,000 kilonewtons of energy in each one of those cracks. So those rocks are being busted apart by the, by the air. And then the storm waves come in and freeze-thaw cycles happen and poor drainage, which is sometimes typical behind rock walls, um, you know, that rock wall is going to fail at some point. Mm -hmm. And so it, the first day is its best day. And those two guys got money and they went away and they're not coming back, right? And it's very expensive to pick rock up off the beach that's been displaced from a rawl and try to stuff it back into that hole. Mm. Giant boulders, really. Yeah, yeah, like it's almost impossible to do that. So then you have to take the wall apart and then rebuild it from wherever the damage was. Very costly. And again, more fossil fuels, more compaction, more damage to the land. Mm -hmm. So then we think about the living shoreline and how that works is usually three to five year plan. Sometimes it's a lifetime plan if you're really in a high energy area. And so now we have a team of five to eight people coming. So eight people get jobs. And yes, we're driving fossil fuels to get there, but hopefully we're carpooling and we're getting as many people in a vehicle as possible. Then we're using our footsteps, you know, of physically fit people walking wheelbarrows down and we're putting native species in and we're doing some strategies like erosion chevrons and terracing and strategic plantings all natural materials, no fossil fuels at all, other than getting us there. Mm -hmm. There's no spillage of fossil fuels. There's no leaking, dripping. Um, and we work for maybe three or four days to put that shoreline together. Maybe it's a week. And over the course of a few years, we're gonna hit a couple storms that damage it for sure. The repairs are pretty quick and pretty simple. You know, we just repaired a 300-foot shoreline in a day and eight hours of work with five oh, wow. people. Like, it's pretty quick, and uh -huh. it's not that expensive. And so you would think about the math between the rock wall and that first day is the best day, and it's only going to get worse after that, yep. where a living shoreline, the first day is actually its worst day, uh, right? Everything's going to grow after that right. and keep growing. The plants will start working on the problem as well as the humans. And if we develop it in a way that the critters get involved and they make nesting and habitat and they poop and they move seeds around, mm -hmm. and then the plants start shedding their own seeds and sending out rootlings and knitting the soil horizon together and exciting the soil food web critters to participate more fully, and the whole ecosystem starts to work and function as an organism, then it can only keep getting better and better. And yes, there will be a wound here and there, but you know, I scraped my knee yesterday too, right? So mm -hmm. you put a Band-Aid on it and you let it heal and then you keep going. Mm -hmm. You don't the ability to heal. stand back and say, oh shoot, it didn't work. Mm -hmm. You say, oh, okay, let's fix it and carry on. Yeah. And then you walk away for a while and you let it grow. Yeah. So when you do the math, you know, it's way more valuable to have six or eight people working on this thing for the next five or three or 10 or forever years, you know, 
because now we have people with job security, we have people eating, paying their bills, not on welfare, you know, doing all the things that make them productive and happy in this society. Like, to me, it's a no-brainer to do it this way. Yeah, no, it's wonderful to hear you kind of explain it and think about the different way of doing math, right? Yeah. Because when you take all those factors into consideration, yes, the math does seem to really be simple. <laughs> Check yeah. out um, to, to really simplify it, I guess, is like you mm-hmm. you choose to pay people instead of paying for fossil fuels and environmental yeah. damage. Right. And then and then also thinking back to what you said before um, about something else about the ripple out effect. I was just thinking, too, that's um, something that you can't probably really um, measure but the mm-hmm. potential rippling out of all the people that work for you having this experience of being connected with the rest of nature and working with a really caring uh, team of people and having that community experience and then whatever else they might do with that feeling or knowledge throughout their lives. Like I feel like there's a yeah. huge potential value to that too. Definitely, definitely. We've seen hundreds of staff come through us and people tend to stay for three to five years usually oh, wow. and then they cycle on to something else. Uh-huh. And you know, most of the time after they've gone to whatever that other thing is, I get a phone call or a text or an email or, you know, I see them or something and they're saying, you know, that was the hardest damn job I ever did, but it really proved to me that I could do anything, Mm -hmm. that I am capable and that nothing's impossible and that I have skills that I would have never had knowing myself better, knowing how to communicate with my team better, how to, you know, be a responsible participant in my life better than what I was before I met you. So that's all the thanks I could ask for, right, to hear that back. From your perspective in response to the, yeah, to the response of the public to helping nature heal, like to your, all the clients you've had and the people that choose to, to Mm -hmm. get, to get your services, do you think there's room for more businesses that prioritize ecological and community values? Definitely. Yeah, of course there is, right? I mean, even if you have a recycling program or you let your people, you know, work from home or do whatever it is in your particular business to enable people to participate more fully in their day, I think almost any business or organization could see how they could be more sustainable, more thoughtful, more participatory in this life rather than just being like, sometimes you walk around and it's like people are just like the walking dead, you know, they're just going through their life, they're in the ruts, they're stuck in this treadmill of whatever it is they're doing. And I just want to like say, hey, come outside with me. If you chew on this stick, it's going to taste like peppermint. You know? <laughs> yeah, try this. That's cool. Try this. <laughs> Go eat that bug or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> you know, Sniff something different than mm-hmm. what you've sniffed over the, the day. You know, Just participate out there in the world because it just stimulates all of these hormones and reactions in our brain. And then you start thinking, what next? And what else is able? And how else can I do it? And it can just start from that really little second, you know? Mm. Yeah. We just need to get everybody outside, right? If joy and freedom from our stuff and our anxieties and all that is out there in the nature. So get outside and figure out what you need. What are you longing for? And then create it. 
right? We have all of this ingenuity and skill and knowledge as a human race, as a human people, animals on this planet, and most of us are not using it, right? And yeah. so when people call us, it's because they're longing for something and they've noticed that they need this thing in order to be the better of themselves, you know? Mm. Yeah, healthier, happier, whatever it is. Yeah. Less stress, you know? I mean, you're watching your landscape wash away. That's pretty stressful. So we do this really neat plant-based strategy and takes work and effort and time and money to do it, but it reduces your stress. So now you're happier and healthier and your family is noticing that and you're eating better and you're not, you know, consuming all the things that mask all those challenges. Yeah, and... all these interconnected right? things always. Yeah. yeah, it's like this really cool web that, yeah. you know, we can get into philosophy and psychology and totally. all the parts of that it, right? Is, yeah, mm -hmm. I think those are a big part And of it's that. like this landscaping company helping nature heal is just like the modality to get people out there to figure out and sort out their own stuff mm -hmm. so they can be the better version of themselves and... You know, isn't that cool? It's very cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I really love it. Rosemary's enthusiasm is contagious. And I feel so appreciative that she has created this local model of a business that operates on various values. I wanted to take a minute to read for you this passage from the course that I mentioned that I am taking. This is from Gaia Education's Economic Dimension. Critically, ecology has come to be seen as a subsystem of economy rather than vice versa. Consequently, the environment has come to be seen primarily as a bank of resources for the undertaking of human economic activities. Today's economy is a very long way from the etymological root of the word economy, derived from the Greek oikos nomos, meaning literally management of the household. Rather than managing our global household responsibly and well, we have today created economic systems in which it is more profitable to cut down trees than to grow forests, to displace communities than to nurture them. Wise management of the household needs deep knowledge of the house itself, and ecology offers that knowledge about nature's life support system and how to manage human affairs within planetary boundaries. Wise management of the household and wisely designed economic systems maintain the socio-ecological patterns of health, regeneration, and resilience that support healthy evolutionary development. End quote. We clearly need wiser and more thoughtful management of our planetary household. The relationships between ecology, society, and economy are central to Rosemarie's business model, as you heard. Each of our efforts to look at things more holistically and choose actions based on our values will lead to a healthier planetary household. And of course, we would do well to take leadership from the Indigenous peoples of these lands. At the date of the release of this episode, June 21st, it is Indigenous Peoples Day in Canada. I invite us each to reflect on and appreciate where we are and the traditional lands that are our homes. Many of my ideas have certainly been influenced by Indigenous knowledge and ways of being. I hope that this will increase over time, and I think about what I can do to help with this cultural shift. I have enormous respect and gratitude for the First Peoples of these lands, and recognize my ongoing responsibility to engage in reconciliation work and decolonization. I believe this is vital as we try to rebuild healthier ecosystems and societies. Thank you for listening to Shared Ground. And please consider supporting Shared Ground with a small donation, which you can make at ko forward slash shared ground. 
That's ko-fi.com forward slash shared ground. Until next time, fellow humans. Thank you.